Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to No Ad, No Problem, a podcast devoted to college tennis and growing the game. Select episodes will be featured on the Great Shot podcast feed, but make sure you also subscribe to No Ad, No Problem on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Check us out on Twitter at JTweetsTennis and Instagram at No Ad, No Problem. I'm your host, John. Let's serve it up. Hey everyone, it's officially post-Labor Day, and that means fall college tennis is upon us. This weekend, we'll get our first glimpse of action across the country. Now, you might have no idea where or when that action is happening, but that's a topic for a different podcast. Today, we're breaking down the ITA's preseason individual rankings that were released earlier this week. And joining me to do that is former Virginia men's tennis player turned law student, Ethan Moskowski. Ethan, thanks for joining me again on the podcast. How have you been since the last time we talked? I've been all good, head first into into law school, up to my neck in in reading about you know torts and ancient American property law and things like that. But it's uh, I'm I'm more than happy to be back doing this. <laughs> Hopefully, this is a little bit of a reprieve from a tort conversation. So that it is. <laughs> we're going to cover both the men's and women's rankings today. Last time when we chatted, we did men's transfers. Excited to cover both men and women today. And the way that we'll do it is first discuss the rankings for the returning players, any tidbits we gleaned, and then we'll spend probably the majority of the time talking about the newcomer rankings, where I think there's probably more interesting conversations to have there. So first on the returning rankings. So if you haven't seen, the ITA has released their preseason individual rankings. They release the singles, doubles, and a newcomer list. And I believe they still go through the top 125 for singles, and they release a top 10 for the newcomers. So on the returning rankings, so this is a list that excludes any incoming players, basically freshmen. Got some questions on like how these rankings work. And guess what? It is quite easy. So they essentially just take the final rankings from June after they run after the NCAA tournament, and they just remove all the players who have graduated or are no longer eligible because they've turned pro or taking the fall off. That's it. There is no other magic or formula that comes into play when we're looking at these returning rankings. So in other words, yeah, we basically know what these preseason rankings are going to look like in June. And Ethan, that brings me to my hot take. And my hot take is that I think it's time that we abolish the preseason individual rankings. And let me tell you why. So the first is, as I just mentioned, they're, they're not very <laughs> useful. They're only used to determine entry into the fall individual tournaments. That yeah. can be done with the June rankings, right? Like if you're going to do the entry list for 
all Americans or any other tournaments, just look at the entry list. If someone, if Ben Shelton has turned pro, guess what? He's not playing all Americans this fall. Cross his name off. <laughs> Pretty easy to do. And so you just move, you know, Stefan Dostinich will get to this. He's the number one player in the country. He'd be yeah. the number one seed. Yep. But I'm not sure we need to do this song and dance of preseason rankings when nothing has changed. So I think that's my first point. And then my second point is, I think given the structure currently of college tennis, where we have this already confusing fall season, and then we move to the spring team season, I think these rankings confuse more than they really help. They're great for social media. And they're great to sort of like um, jazz up excitement, jazz up excitement. And like, I mean, great. Yeah. I know power of Dostinich. Is he now number one in, in the country? Like, that's awesome. But I think for the average fan, they're probably kind of thinking like, what the heck? Right. What does and, it mean? What does it all mean? Yeah. What yeah. is it? Like, what does that mean? And I honestly think it makes the sport seem a little silly when we announce these individual rankings in September for a sport that culminates in May. And obviously, as I, as I mentioned, sort of like the current structure, this changes if we move to NCAA individuals in November, then there's like a lot more interest in what this is. And that's a whole separate conversation for then the fidelity of these rankings matters significantly more, but I'm going on the record. Like, I think it's time to abolish these. What say you? Well, I would say they're fine if, and only if, the ITA begins to take things into account that aren't just college tennis. Okay. Yeah, if that's if you're willing to incorporate, I'm, I'm just looking down the, the top 10 players. I want to say at least six of the top 10 went deep into, into summer of, you know, futures. There's a challenger winner on there. There are a couple of futures winners on there. If the ITA is willing to incorporate, the broader tennis world into these rankings and then try and sit down at the end of the summer and put together a list that says, given what happened last season and how these players have performed over the summer, essentially this is what we're expecting. These are, these are who appear to be the best players heading into the, in our case, 2022, 23 season. Then, yeah, I think they can be sort of, they can be an interesting litmus test at the beginning of the season and sort of, allow us to to get more information because it's very hard to follow you know when guys are playing futures in every corner of the world you know Absolutely. we have futures in vietnam and in tunisia and in spain and in south america it's very hard to follow all of the college tennis players mm-hmm. so if the ita wants to take that upon themselves and make that their responsibility and come up with rankings i might actually appreciate it there's a practical issue to that right which is the ITA has its ranking formula that it used to calculate these rankings in May. And then you have to figure out, well, how do you weight a futures result if there were no other college tennis players in the draw? How do you how do you validate the results and essentially standardize them, which is what the rankings do, right? The rankings attempt to standardize the results in college tennis. So how do you how do you broaden that to, to tennis at large? Some would say UTR. Some would say UTR, but yeah. it's, you know, as of right now, the, this sort of, I agree, this, this initial ranking is sort of a fun excitement builder. You know, you get to go on Instagram and the ITA has reposted every school in the country who's created some ridiculous graphic about how their players ranked 112 in singles, you know, so it's, there is a little bit of, of fun to it. Um, but no, more than anything, I think this is sort of, it does jumpstart the year. It's like, okay, the rankings are back. 
Um, and so in that sense, I guess it sort of gets you moving towards the college tennis season, but no, there's not a lot of utility in them is what I'd say. Yeah. It's sort of like the ceremonial start of like fall exactly. season is kicking off. And I think what you've been discussing is sort of the broader issue at play with the rankings, right. Of incorporating other college results. I think what I've heard is that the NCAA cannot like has a has a rule to not include non-collegiate yeah events or results but this further compromises amateurism you know well that yeah so that's (laughs) that's opening up a whole can of worms but ultimately where we are how the season is slated what these rankings are right now doesn't include any of that it is strictly a straight line replacement and moving everyone up uh, and so we are where we are. So yeah. with that said, uh, let's get into the returning rankings for the men. And so I'll briefly walk through the top 10 just for those listening. So number one, as we mentioned, is Stefan Dostinich of Southern California. Number two is Gabe Diallo of Kentucky. Number three is Cannon Kingsley of Ohio State. Number four is Inyaki Montez of Virginia. Number five is Luke Famba of TCU. Number six is uh, Nikola Slavich of Ole Miss. Number seven is Chris Rodesh of Virginia. Number eight is JJ Tracy of Ohio State. Number nine, Tyler Stice of Auburn. And number 10, Alex Kotzen of Columbia. So Ethan, knowing what we know around how these rankings come to fruition, what was your initial reaction when you saw them? Yeah, I mean, for, so first of all, my my initial initial reaction is actually they're not that bad, <laughs> right? <laughs> I think when when this when when we do this in May of 2023 and we sit down and we you know we talk about who the best players in the country were are of these ten, I imagine a lot of them are going to still be in that conversation. So at least at least we have that right, which is the players ranked at the top are probably deserving to be there, and that's that at least it's sort of a backwards uh, validation of the rankings, right? The players that they're ranking being ranked somewhat properly, even though they have no basis other than where they ended in May, but given the summers that Dostinich and Diallo and, and Inyaki had, you sit there and you go, you know what? Those three are probably three of the best players in college tennis. So we can live with, we can live with these rankings as they are. That said, <laughs> there there's some stuff here that's pretty funny, right? We all know Gabe Diallo won a challenger. Not many college players win challengers. And so yeah. it is a little funny to see his name second. You know, there are things <laughs> sure. like that. There are things like that that play in. But you have Dostinich won a futures title. Inyaki won a futures title. Chris won a futures title. So uh, JJ Tracy final to futures, maybe? I think in um, Ohio State yeah, or the Columbus. Yes. Yeah, the day, not the Ohio State futures, the Columbus futures. (laughs) But yes, you know, so over the summer, we talk about, oh, you know, the rankings could be better if you incorporate summer results. Actually, some of the college tennis players who had the best summers are ranked in the top end of these rankings anyway. Um, That's the first interesting thing. The second interesting thing, and I know we're going to talk about this, is always who's not there, Mm -hmm. right? What are the names that were at the top of that list that we haven't really heard much about who are suddenly not there, but were there last May? You know, obviously Ben Shelton, we now know is a protest player. So it's a surprise that he's missing, but 
Adrian Boyton could come back for another year. His yeah. name's missing. Danny Rodriguez could come back for another year. His name's missing. You know, these are guys who were at the, you know, were in these spots in the rankings a year ago who could continue to play college tennis, but their names are missing. And that's that I think is some of the more interesting information that you can parse out of these rankings as opposed to, you know, who's one, two, and three. It's who we expect to see there who's, you know, MIA. Exactly. That's definitely the interesting part of this, not just like what the June rankings are and everyone moves up. Yeah. Although it did feel noticeable. I agree with you that the players on this list, yeah, like as expected, these are those May rankings should essentially predict who goes on to have good summers. They did, yep. they're validated, all makes sense. Looking at this though, it was like, wow, there is a lot of people missing, either from turning pro or taking the fall off, right? So 13 of the June rankings yeah, from the top are 20 gone. are not ranked, yeah. right? So you have guys like Chris Rodesh, who finishes number 20 last year, moves up all the way to number seven, right? Alex Kotzen, yep. who rounds out the top 10, was 24. 24 Those are yeah. really big jumps. So that felt noticeable. Huge. Especially in the top end. It's one thing when somebody goes from, you know, 60 something to 40 something right. that assumes that people graduate and things like that, but to go from... 24 25 to the top 10 is is a that's a it's a meaningful jump those are players who are right you know contending to win the national title at the end of the season right without any uh yeah any impact from their their play <laughs> nothing having happened yes nothing happened <laughs> so the one other thing i want to call out before we should move on to the notable who's missing uh is both ohio state and virginia the only two schools with two in the top 10 I don't think that's a surprise. Um, I'm I not think, surprised. Yeah. Obviously we could have known that in <laughs> yeah. June, um, but uh, big things to come for both of those schools in the 2023 season. Well, I would tell you there's a certain player on the UVA team who's noted that he is not inside the top 10. He is inside the top 20, but two of his classmates are, and he will be very motivated to get himself into the top 10. I think this, this is a, this is a quiet, great piece of motivation for Jeffrey von der Schulenberg. <laughs> I'm a hundred percent sure Inyaki and Chris are making sure he's aware of the fact that he's the one who's not in the top 10. And I'm sure he's very motivated as a result. So there is that aspect as well. You get to see which players might be a little unhappy with how low they're ranked, even if it has nothing to do with their results and entirely just on where they were in May. That's totally fair. <laughs> we should say that they have the fall, right, to to change those results. Yep. So at the end yep. of the fall in December, we come out with basically that's probably the most wild list we ever see. Yeah, because well, that's just based on fall results and mostly Tulsa. It's mostly based on I mean, Tulsa weights those results really heavily because you can play so many matches in Tulsa with pre-qualifying and qualifying yep. and a back exactly. draw and a main draw. And, and we see crazy things happen last year. We had the player from Hawaii. Yeah, on the semifinals. Yep. Make the semifinals of Tulsa. And he's a top 10 player in the country at the start yeah. of the season who we, who we wouldn't have spoken of. No, at this and, time and, last year. So, and, and the wild thing, and certainly, I mean, not schools like Hawaii, but well, schools like Hawaii in that case, now he gets to play the NCAAs. If he, for example, yeah. doesn't play All Americans, let's say he's hurt, he's going to yeah, have a never, really tough time getting into the NCAAs. NCAAs. Yeah. Exactly. With the exception of, like the highest ranked finisher in your conference, but like more often than not, it's very difficult to do. It is also yeah. a benefit for schools like the North Carolina women always come to mind when you have like, yeah, well, 
they already have points. five players. <laughs> exactly. They already, I mean, in the preseason rankings, they have five players in the top 30, I think. Yeah, so. but they need to ride their fall season results through the oh, spring yeah. season to get into NCAA. So yeah, because someone's got to play six. Someone's got to play <laughs> six. Exactly. So, so yeah. no, you do see that a lot in the fall. Yeah, exactly. That's really what the fall the yes, fall does. Hundred I mean, percent. Yeah, exactly. So all right, notable absences. You already talked about Ben Shelton, you know, turned pro. Adam Walton finished number two, turns graduates. I did not know this, but it's been confirmed that Daniel Rodriguez of South Carolina, who finished the year number three, former NCAA finalist, he has turned pro. He did have eligibility remaining, so he is not included in this list. Next notable absence, you have number six, and I'm using like June's rankings. Number six, (laughs) Liam Draxel of Kentucky. I don't think this was a surprise at all. He took the fall off last year, taking the fall off this year. You mentioned Adrian Boyton. This feels like a question mark, right? There has been no I'm turning pro announcement. He is off the roster. Yeah. And he did not take the fall off last year. So this could be an indication that he is in fact not coming back. Yeah. Anything else to add on Boyton? I'm pretty sure Boyton is not coming back. I remember a post that coach Woodson had made where he, you know, he posted a picture of a bunch of the players and was thanking mainly, I think, Sven Law and Matias Soto, who graduated, who we knew weren't coming back. But I think I recall seeing a picture of Boitan in there as well. So I'm not a hundred percent certain, but I I don't think we're gonna see uh we're gonna see Adrian Boitan play Colin yeah. Shannis again. It's looking much more not likely than likely. Yeah, but- and he's and coach Woodson has some, some great recruits coming in as well. So, you know, he sort of filled some spots that were open. And so there's always the outside chance, but I would be leaning towards, we've seen the last of, of Boyton and college tennis. Yep. Well, Baylor's been a little cagey. So coach Woodson, uh, DMs are open. Uh, so the next notable absence here was Arthur Ferry, who finished number 11, played number one, actually reached number one in the rankings yep. last season for Stanford. He is still on the Stanford roster. He did not take the fall off last year. I think this is another player where there is increasing speculation that he might not come back. He has played a pretty full pro schedule. He is currently probably already played Duarte Valle in the quarterfinals of a 25 K today. So he's definitely not playing the fall TBD on if we see him uh, arrive for the January quarter at Stanford. Yeah. I mean, my thought on, on Arthur Ferry is, is you sort of, you mentioned it at the very end there, the Stanford system, because the school starts much later and ends much later does give them a little more wiggle room. And it still says Stanford 24 in his bio. So maybe he's going to his Instagram bio. Maybe yeah. he's going to come back. I think, you know, he's in an interesting situation because the LTA, the, you know, the British USTA basically has done, has done a really good job. I think trying to give him opportunities. He's played a bunch yep. of like UK area futures, and I think it's even a, a challenger wildcard, Wimbledon wildcard for qualities or was a main draw, but and qualifying wildcard and main draw doubles. I think so. Yep. Y- you've got a lot of stuff playing into that decision. Ultimately, you got you know a, a tennis federation, a national tennis federation that's really trying to do right by the player, which is great to see. Okay, great to see that a, a federation is taking that stance with the player who's actively in college. So you know he's getting pulled in different directions. I don't know if we're going to know on, on whether or not we see Arthur Ferry for, for a little bit yet, 
Yeah. Uh, I think it might be a longer time here. And, and Stanford, fortunately, because they start class on the later side, it does give him a little bit more wiggle room in that in that decision. So, yeah, well, I think it's clear he's not playing the fall. Right. And he's, he's definitely not to play the, the pro season. Yeah. So we yeah. won't know until basically yep. January. Yeah. All right. So these next two, I actually thought were the most interesting. Uh, we touched on this briefly, but Johannes Monday of Tennessee, number 16 finisher of last season's rankings. He is still on the roster. He did not take the fall off last year. So this is a, a new MO for him. I assume that he will, we will see him in January. He will continue to play pro tournaments. There's a lot of us pro futures this summer, um, this summer and fall. I assume that that's his, uh, his go-to. Yeah, that would be my assumption. I mean, talk about a gut punch for Tennessee. If he doesn't come back, I'm assuming he's coming back. The Tennessee team is really good. He's committed a lot. This is opportunity to play number one, you know, without a Walton gone. It, it feels like everything's pointing towards him being back, but I think it's great to take the fall off, play a bunch of, you know, pro events, get, get used to that lifestyle since eventually that guy's going to be a pro tennis player. So it's not, it's not the worst thing in the world for him to, you know, travel around and, and play a lot of pro events, but I, I think we'll see him back in January. Yeah. And absolutely. That's the advantage for him, right. Is to, and any of these players really take the fall off, dip your toe into the pro circuit, understand what it's like to, to travel week in, week out, without kind of the infrastructure support of the school and the facilities and the training, are there any advantages for the school when they have players take the fall off? Yeah. I mean, so there, you can look at this in in two different ways. The first is the real actual tennis way, which is um, the players who are taking the fall off typically are are players who the coaches are pretty happy with the level of development. Um, So Mm -hmm. they're players like Johannes Monday, who, yeah, it's great when he's back at Tennessee practice. I'm sure it improves their practice. I'm sure the team loves when he's there. I'm sure the coaches love having him there. But he also probably needs less work. Um, and so as a result, for him to go out and test himself is a great thing. And for the coaches to be able to commit more hours on court with guys who need more reps of a certain thing or just need to be under a coach's eye a little bit more, it gives the coaches a lot more bandwidth to focus on the players that are there. Uh, as opposed to players who aren't there, who, you know, ultimately the fall a little bit for them is just months of practice, you know, and Tulsa. And that's it. For You see that for a lot of fall players. They should go for Tulsa. That's the only fall event they play. And that just means that they're just practicing all the time. So now the coaches get to focus on the guys who they see things that they want to work out. They want to make improvements in guys' games. They get to focus a lot on those guys. The second thing is the scholarship ramifications. Mm. Um there are, there are scholarship ramifications to taking the fall off. The, uh, the scholarship dollar method in college tennis is such that if you are on a full scholarship and you take the fall off, you are only actually eating up half a scholarship. So in a world where tennis gets four and a half scholarships, you could have nine guys on your team who don't, don't exist at the university in the fall who show up in the spring and they could all be on quote unquote full scholarships, meaning their spring semester is fully paid for. So it does give the coaches a little bit more, you know, I come from a, I like talking about hockey and and other sports. It gives coaches what I would refer to as a little bit more cap space. They've Mm -hmm. got some more space under the salary cap that they can fit guys in with scholarships. And so you can see bigger teams. You can see teams with a lot more guys that, you know, a lot of us might look at and go, how, how do they have that many guys of that caliber on that team? 
taking the fall off gives coaches a little bit of wiggle room with, uh, with some scholarship space. I know a lot of coaches don't love doing that because they do like to have their eyes on their players and they don't want to have guys just show up and make a team in the spring, right? The, it's nice to have the team mentality, uh, you know, sort of burning through it all year. Uh, but I would say my uh, sophomore year at UVA, my second year for the UVA folks listening, uh, Henrik Weirsholm was on the team, but he took the fall off. He graduated. So he was a fifth year. He had a red shirt because of injury. He took the fall off. And when he came back, he fit right into the team, gelled really quickly. And it was great when he would come back during the fall. He'd show up. You know, I think he, he got a qualifying uh, wild card into the Charlottesville Challenger. It was great to have him around for a weekend. It sort of it excites everyone really quickly. Practices look a little bit better. You know, there's a sense of excitement. So sometimes having parts that move in and out a little bit can create a little bit more excitement in practice and, and can make things a little bit higher intensity. And, and that's what coaches are looking for. Ultimately the fall, yeah. sometimes it's a little hard to get, you know, may level NCAA tournament intensity in your practices, but that's ultimately what you want, right? The teams that are practicing like it's may all year long, if they're staying healthy, they're going to be the most prepared. And so coaches sort of do whatever they think is best for their group of guys. Uh, generally speaking, in terms of take the fall off, don't take the fall off. That would be, yeah. you know, sort of, the boring, but blanketly true answer. <laughs> no. And I, I love that you share that because my mind immediately went to when we were talking about the transfers and noting how many transfers Tennessee had and just yeah. their roster is so full, particularly yep. juxtaposed to some of the other sec teams that we were talking about, like a Georgia, yep. this immediately thinks, okay, this could be a way in which you kind of bring in someone as a transfer, right? Because that additional scholarship can kind of go through, uh, uh, go to that person, right? Let's totally. assume Monday's on a full scholarship. I mean, look, we, we talk about Blaze Bicknell, right? Yep. Who transferred there last year, but right. then be, wasn't, you know, couldn't play. And so throughout the spring, wasn't really competing, but then competed a bit over the summer. But I'm going to guess the coaches are stoked to now have two or three months where they can really focus with Blaze on getting his game to where they want it to be. That way, come January, you know, he's ready to go. Whereas for a guy like Monday, who competed really well all spring, competed yeah. really well last fall, had a really good summer. Do the coaches really need to have him around right. as much in practice on a day-to-day -day basis so that he shows up in January, the player that they need? Not so much. I think coaches shape their fall around. What do we need to get from each guy that way come January 10th or 11th or 12th or whenever your first match is? those six guys that are on the court that day are the sort of tennis player that you need them to be to get the best results possible. And if that means, Hey, Joe Monday, you've been super successful. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep playing pro tennis or, Hey, I need you in practice, you know, six or seven days a week. And we're, you know, you need to be hitting a lot of balls because you haven't been competing because you've been hurt or you just, you know, not been competing. Then that's what you need to do. It, it varies player to player and school to school coaches have different styles. So. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Thanks for walking through that. The last notable absence here is a player that I will say has now shocked me twice throughout this the season. Shocking. This uh, shocked me. Patrick Maloney of Michigan finished the season number 63. The first time he surprised me this summer was getting the invite to the uh, USTA wildcard challenge, which was an eight player uh, forum yep. uh, earlier this summer. Now another surprise. He is still on the roster. He has his fifth year at Michigan. He did not take the fall off last year, but he is not in the fall rankings. So, yeah, this is an interesting one. Yeah. What's your thoughts here? This is an interesting one for a couple of reasons. The first is 
we can take a guess on who's going to play one for that team. Okay. My, I, I don't think Styler is, is going to play any position, but one. Yep. But the Michigan team has a lot of options kind of running through the middle of that lineup. You know, guys who look, the best thing that can happen for a team is over the summer, you have somebody who shows up or the previous season is, is a, as a guy who you trust at four or five, who shows up in the fall and you're like, wow, this guy's a top three guy. Yep. Right. And the way that coaches usually know that is because they're there and they're competing a lot and they're working really hard and they're seeing what's being put in and they're seeing what's coming out the other end. And this team has a lot of guys on it who could wind up being like that. You know, we talk about how successful Gavin Young was last year, Jacob Bickerstaff, you know, uh, they have a lot of guys in this team who are really successful at, you know, lower spots in the lineup who, if they have productive falls, could very easily be moving up. Maybe Pat Maloney, it's a certainty he's playing too, and we just don't know what we don't know. But there is, this is a, this is a very full lineup. So I, I was a little surprised because he can get a lot. Of, I would imagine you can get a lot out of these practices. You know, this is a very deep team with a lot of guys who compete really hard. Uh, so, I, yeah, I was I was a bit surprised to see him not not in the rankings. Yep, absolutely. I assume he'll play pro tournaments uh, and we will see how how he is successful there. So that kind of covers the returning men. Let's shift gears to the returning women. I think these were significantly more straightforward. So I'll yeah. briefly run through the current list. So number one, Aaron Cayetano of USC. So shout out to USC. They have both the number one men and the number one woman. Uh, loved a lot of the social media as we talked about. Like USC has been really promoting Lots that of social media as, as they should. I think that's exciting. Uh, by the way, it would be great for the ITA to let us know when the last time that happened was a uh, huge proponent of digitized rankings. Like that sort of information should be readily available. Someone at, someone at UVA and Daniel Collins. That would be my guess. Yeah, maybe. Right. That would be I mean, my guess. Danielle yeah. Ryan chain, Ryan chain and Daniel Collins didn't win NCAs the same year in 2015 because Danielle didn't win it in 15, but won it in 14 and 16. But I'm going to guess sometime around then Daniel Collins and, and a UVA men's player, since everyone on those UVA teams seem to have been ranked one in the country at one point or another. So, yeah, it probably had to be 2016. Right. And yeah, so maybe, that, but that's, that's yeah. Ryan, that's Ryan wasn't, yeah. yeah. So Ryan I don't know. Quite, yeah. This is not a Who question knows? that we need to answer ourselves. It'd be great <laughs> for the ITA to answer it for us. Aaron Cayetano, number one of USC, number two, Sarah Hamner of South Carolina, Number three, Daria Freeman of Princeton. Number four, Lane Sleeth of Oklahoma. Number five, Chloe Beck of Duke. Number six, Cam Mora of Nor... I mean Duke. Duke. Number seven, Connie Ma of Stanford. Number eight, Georgia Drummy of Duke. Number nine, Carson Branstein of Texas A&M. And number 10, Irina Contos of Ohio State. So looking at this, a few big takeaways. One is Duke with three players in the top 10, thanks to the addition of the transfer from North Carolina, Cam Mora. Ultimately, a lot less turnover than the yeah, men. Way less. Right? Way like less. eight of the top 20, only eight of the top 20 from last year, not ranked. That was 13 for the men. It yep. pretty much feels like, yes, we lost, you know, Emma Navarro and Stearns turning pro early. All of the other absences in the top 20 are from graduating. Obviously, Stearns and Navarro leave 
a huge hole at the top. And it feels like now these rankings in particular are pretty much parody, right? Like these players all feel, um, you know, of similar level. Maybe you, I do think you have it right where Aaron Cayetano finished three last year. I think she's had a solid summer. She is, I think the de facto number one coming in. So I think that that makes sense. Other than that, I don't think many big surprises, right? You don't see as many, any women taking the fall off, at least not yet, right? Not indicated by being excluded from the rankings. There were only three players that I thought were notable absences throughout. The first was my Sawanka of Oklahoma state. I know you were able to see her play when Oklahoma state faced off against Virginia in the round of 16. I think she was one of the most underrated freshmen last year. She had a phenomenal campaign with Oklahoma State. Oklahoma State does not have their updated roster. Isn't that annoying? It is so annoying. Believe me. Isn't that annoying? There are a couple of schools that haven't updated their rosters yet. I'm like, hey, guys, clock's ticking. Classes started. The only schools I give any grace to are the ones on the quarter system, at which point I'm like September 20-something comes around. I'm like, tick-tock. But yeah. <laughs> those schools like Stanford, they have updated their roster. So yeah, uh, Coach Chris Young, we're waiting for the updated yep. roster. Uh, and then the only other two players that I noted here were Salma Ewing of South of Southern California, USC. Uh, she did have one year of eligibility. I think she's made yep. it pretty clear she's not coming back. And Alicia yep. Bolton of UCLA also had a remaining year of eligibility. Pretty clear she's not coming back. Uh, Ethan, any other surprises here on the women's side? Uh, surprises? No. I mean, Aaron was the player who I think she started last year. Number one, she was number one at one point last year. Well, cause she, oh, had, a, she had a great fall, last year, right? She had a great fall. Yeah. She was ranked number one going she, into January. Exactly. And so, yeah, no surprises here. Right. Air, you know, Aaron Cayetano, like we, like we just mentioned, Sarah Hamner won fall Nats last year. I think uh, Aaron or won fall Nats, uh, Hamner won Sarah all Americans, all Americans. Right. So, you know, it makes sense. The big takeaway for me is it it gave me an even more profound level of respect for for Emma and Peyton. Yeah, because for a really long time, it felt like we were just waiting for the women's rankings to turn over enough so that Emma and Peyton were the top two players in the country because we were seeing the results on a week to week basis that kind of blew your mind. Right. You know players on this list losing to the likes of Emma and Peyton with score lines that are sort of insane. You know, Peyton was beating players yeah. on this list, love and love. Emma yeah. was beating bakery products, right. <laughs> love and one. And it was, yeah, it was astonishing. And we were just waiting for those two to be one and two in the country in some order. Right. I'd point out Emma beat Peyton, but it's fine. Um, <laughs> now you look at this and you're like, wow, well, first of all, Duke practices are going to be very competitive. Very. That's the first takeaway is you've, I mean, someone's got to play three of these three players, right? You've got Chloe Beck at five, Cam Moore at six and Georgia Drummy at eight. Someone's playing three. You can't all play one. So that'll be a very interesting thing to see what that lineup looks like come, come January. But also you, you look up and down this list and you go, wow. If any of these players start in January at number one in the country, I wouldn't be surprised. You know, whereas Last year, it kind of felt like we were waiting for Emma and Peyton, one of them, to be one in the country. Here, right. if it's if it's Aaron come January, totally believable. Yeah. If it's Chloe Beck, totally believable. If right. it's Connie Ma, totally believable. I, you know, the women, the women's rankings, I think, are going to be easier for the ITA than the men's because 
they can kind of all be number one. It's it's we can't be so critical until we see it, you know, happen. Yeah. And at that point, it'll all be based on the fall season. So you don't have any exactly. players taking the fall off, which Peyton and Emma did, which is why throughout yep. the spring they were like climbing their way up, waiting and waiting one and, and two. Yeah. And yep. now they're gone. It does feel like a, a new leaf has been turned over. So with that, uh, let's take a quick break and then we'll discuss the newcomers. All right. So if the returning rankings are all of these familiar faces that we have come to know over the course of the past year or multiple years, the newcomer rankings are kind of the, the exciting new faces, right? They are new to college tennis. They are primarily all freshmen. And I want to talk a little bit about how these newcomer rankings work. So there is a 12-person ITA ranking committee for both the men and the women. They essentially submit a ballot that they create themselves. They're instructed to kind of use factors such as USTA ranking, ITF junior ranking, and the player's ATP or WTA ranking. Notably absent from that is UTR, although we'll get into that later on. And the th- key thing to call out is they certainly don't always get it right. You just have to look back to last year. Connie Ma, one of the most highly touted, certainly U.S. recruits, was not on the list at all. She goes on to make the NCAA finals this past year. She is now you know, well within the top 10 rankings uh, of the ITA. On the men's side last year, you had Murphy Cassone, another player who was, I believe, the number one recruit in the U.S. He was listed at number eight. Certainly, he's gone on, obviously, to earn ITA Rookie of the Year accolades, finished the year as the highest ranked freshman, he's had a phenomenal summer, and is now actually has the highest UTR of any player in college tennis. So there are often players missing. Often these orders are, are maybe not exactly what they should be, but it might not really matter, right? Because what does being on this list get you other than the social media accolades from both your school and probably, you know, the, the <laughs> Instagram posts I make about this podcast. Like, yeah. Cracked rackets, other things like that. It's not a lot. You know, the number one newcomer allegedly gets a wild card into qualifying of all Americans. I think that that is still a little unclear. And then the remaining players on the newcomers list. So like two through 10 somehow get stack ranked against returning players to earn entry into pre-qualifying. But the women's selections for all Americans are already out. And you have a player like Alexis Blockina, who is not in pre-qualifying yet. Other newcomers ranked below her are. So I'm not really sure, you know, it's basically Instagram. So (laughs) (laughs) it's tough to be, it's tough to be a freshman. Yeah. It's a little tough. You got to kind of earn your, earn your keep uh, here, which I think does tie back to some of the conversations we were having earlier around. There's probably a better way to integrate new players into the collegiate ranks. So the way that I want to structure this conversation is I'll run through the top 10 newcomers and then we'll talk about like, did they get number one, right? Are there players that you're surprised made the list? And then who we think is missing from this list. So on the men's side, we have number one, Ethan Quinn, red shirt at Georgia. Number two, we have Nishesh Basavaretti of Stanford. Number three, we have Michael Zhang of Columbia. Number four, we have Pedro Rodinas of Duke. Number five, we have Sebastian Gorsny of TCU. Number six, we have top Nidin Junzan of Princeton. Number seven, we have Zambor Velch of Baylor. Number eight, we have Oliver Tarvet of San Diego. 
number nine, Samir Banerjee of Stanford, and number 10, Martin Brasak of Baylor. So Ethan, first question, did they get number one right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, as long as you're going to include Ethan Quinn as a newcomer, right? The bigger question is, is he a newcomer? And if you're going to say he's a newcomer, then yes, he should be number one. I mean, that's that's ultimately, that's what that conversation comes down to. He redshirted last spring, but he was on a college campus. He was in practice. You know, he's clearly a part of that team. You see the amount of Georgia stuff he's wearing, the presence of the coaches and a lot of his matches and things like that. Uh, he's maybe less of a newcomer sure. than than some of the other members uh, of this list, but yeah, but definitely a newcomer be, to the rankings, right? He's never been in the rankings. A newcomer so to the rankings. I and think if it's you're going to include him, yeah. if you're going to include him, he's got to be number one. Yeah, yeah. I think I think you have to include him because otherwise, he's not included anywhere, right? So yeah. he kind of yeah. well, he can't here. be ranked, right? Exactly. Yeah. So I guess that's yeah, that's yep. the that is the argument for putting him there. Yeah. So <laughs> my immediate takeaway was like, yes. Ethan Quinn, number one, it kind of feels like Ethan Quinn and then the field. Uh, next question for you would be, was there anyone on this list that surprised you? So n- no, there were people who were in places that surprised me. Okay. Um, so a little bit of like a Murphy Cassone. Why are they here? Yeah, okay. Well, I, my personal opinion, and I know he's been hurt, but Samir Banerjee won junior Wimbledon. <laughs> Right. Like he won a junior in 2021, slam right? So a year not ago, 22. Yep. He was committed to Columbia when he won, <laughs> he won that slam. Yep. But still, you you look at a player like that and you go, well, yeah, but you compare him to the guy right above him and you go, why would Oliver Tarvit necessarily be above Samir Banerjee? it's tough to make an argument for a guy with the resume that he has, even if it's a slightly outdated resume to, to be put in that position. That that's the only thing I'd say when you yeah. look at the top, you know, I, well, it's quite funny. Columbia has this year's junior Wimbledon finalist in Michael is, Zhang. Yep. Who is three on the list. Right. And there's a recency bias thing with that. And, and all of that's completely understood, but not many guys win junior slams and go to college. You know, he did. I would think nine would be a little low. That's that's the only thing I would say in terms of players on the list and and being surprised by anything. That that yeah. would be my uh, that would be my my assertion. I think that's fair. I think looking at this list, I had my takeaway. I two you know Baylor and Stanford are the only schools with two players two. on this list, yep. and I had question marks about all of those players, but for different reasons, right? For someone like Samir Banerjee, the Wimbledon run was a shock, right? That yeah. was. He was not you came know, out of nowhere. Came no, out really of nowhere, came out of nowhere. Right? Yeah. And then it sort of trailed off. Right. And then yeah. he got hurt. And so I think there's yeah. a question mark of like, where does his level fall right now? He has been playing a decent amount of pro tournaments this event uh, this year. So I think that's a question mark of like, are we seeing a the junior Wimbledon champion or are we seeing someone who like had yeah, a really a great player? Week? Exactly. Yeah. Well, and, and are you seeing a new player? So it's an injury. You know, you never know what you're right. going to get from guys when they come back from injuries. And so are you seeing the player that won Junior Wimbledon, even if that was where he was headed? You know, if that right. was Good point. if he was on that trajectory, but then injuries change things. And, you know, you just you don't you don't necessarily know at that point what you're going to see. So there's a little bit more of a question mark about him. Certainly. Yeah. yeah. yeah and then with, you know, Nishesh Basavaretti, I mean, another player who's had a lot of injuries over his career, had an excellent U.S. junior swing 
has sort of yep. uh, trailed off a little bit, doesn't have really a track record uh, playing pro events. So those to me feel like they have high upside. The Baylor players were a surprise for me. Uh, you know, so Zambor Velch, you know, he's played three tournaments this year. He's still playing 25 Ks in <laughs> Hungary right now as we have this conversation. So unclear if he will actually play this fall. Martin Brasak has had a strong, you know, junior career, reached top 20 yeah. in the world, but he's been toiling away at these ITFs. Yeah. I mean, he's nine and 15 this year. These, I will say this, I think that there are question marks about whether or not Baylor continues to bring in all-star recruits. They feel yep. very much in the same vein of Miladinovic last year, where it was like, had a really strong resume and then come in and end up going four and five during the spring season. Yeah. And fall out of favor and not be playing. Coming. Yeah. And are not yeah. playing. Right. It's so like, yeah, I don't know if there's a ton of success where you have players who like try their hardest to be a pro tennis player and then resort back to college tennis. Like those players, I don't actually think end up thriving in college. So I'll see. I could be totally wrong about Velch and Braysack. Uh, Braysack is a little younger, I believe, than um, than Velch. So we'll see. But those were ones where I was like, I, I mean, yeah, they're yeah. I'm trying ranking to yeah. are, are are solid, but like anyone's would be solid if you play 30, 40, you know, ITF yeah. 15k rankings. Like yeah, you'd be in the top 800. So those are the only ones that really surprised me. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. I think there's I think Ethan Quinn, Bossa Veretti, Michael Zhang, certainly on the U.S. side. Yeah, it three. seems, it seems, yeah. And, I, you know, I would just say as you continue to go back, you continue to go down the list, Pedro or Danis, you have to see. I mean, Duke's had guys who I feel like have been in this conversation of are these, you know, top newcomers. I feel like they've had guys on this list in years past and it hasn't panned out necessarily. So you have to wait and see what that guy looks like in a Duke uniform. I have a feeling we're going to see a lot of Sebastian Gorsny over the next couple of years. I imagine he's going to be important to the TCU lineup this year. And I, and I know we're going to talk more about TCU in a second, but um, yeah, I, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these, whether they pan out from the newcomer list pan out's a little bit harsh, but whether they, whether they look like this, you know, when these guys are seniors, are these going to be the top 10 players in the country? I think a little bit of it depends on, well, who comes after them, but also, where do guys play in the lineup, right? I mean, we figure Ethan Quinn is probably going to play one for Georgia, right? That's sort of our, our assumption. So yeah, he's going to be a factor in college tennis as we go forward. So it's very easy for us to sit here and go, yeah, it's a slam dunk that he's, you know, the number one newcomer. We don't really know where Basavaretti is going to fit into the Stanford lineup. We can sort of project out. We don't even know if Arthur Ferry is coming back. Right. And if Arthur Ferry is coming back, it, it changes that significantly. So, you know, that's sort of the tough part about the newcomer rankings is you've got guys on this list who are going to play one at their schools as freshmen. And you've got guys on this list who are going to struggle to crack the lineup at five and six because the teams are so competitive. So that, yeah. that complicates these lists a little bit. 
It does. I think that's a really good point. I think also if you are a UTR evangelist, worth noting that Ethan Quinn comes in at a 13.78, just as a benchmark, we've talked about Murphy Cassone, Montez Diallo, you know, that's 14.16 and above. So not necessarily coming in at the very tippy top of college tennis. And honestly, as you get down to Banerjee at 13.3, yeah. Raysack at 13.1, like you're not talking about the top guys in no. college. You're talking about like at, at least no, those on, are, those are middle of the lineup guys, yep. you know, four, three, four, five guys at, at top 25 schools. The, yep. Like that's typically what you see from a UTR standpoint. We always know that the top, you know, the top five to 10 players in the country, depending on the year are going to be a, above a 14. I remember there was a year, I think it was 2019 where Gojo, Wolf, Carl Soderlin, Will Blumberg, all above 14. It was yep. a crazy year and it was like everybody was so good. But uh, yeah, typically you look at the low 14s as the very, very top end of college tennis and 13-3 puts you in the middle of the lineup. You're definitely in the lineup. Very few guys are, are sitting with 13-3 UTRs, but uh, it's not, it doesn't jump off the page. Yep, exactly. And I want to make that point because I think that's in contrast to when we discuss the women. And I also would make the argument that I think incoming freshmen often have an inflated UTR above. They the can, college, they certainly can tennis. because they, well, the, the, the types of events they're playing are very different. You know, exactly. if you're a college tennis player who plays really good college tennis and, you know, plays a couple of futures in the summer, you're going to have to win a lot when you're in college, or you're going to have to win one of those futures for you to get to, you know, 14, one, right. you know, and by the way, if you don't play all fall, there was, there was a very, very good player in my time at UVA who refused to play fall tennis and his UTR come the start of the season would be like a 13, four, and he would be one of the best 10 players in college tennis. So, right. you know, that, that happens as well. Yeah. And there's an impact of that for that player. Then, someone else they'd have to beat them by like a certain score line to have it even Matt, right like, yeah well and you have you have very little control over who you're playing right you can win 10 matches in a row the players don't get progressively better like in a, right. in, a in a tournament you know one would assume that the guy you play in the finals is probably gonna have a pretty high utr when you play the one yep. seed he's gonna have a pretty high utr in college tennis you could play the best player in the country on friday and play some somebody who's ranked 74 in the country on you know yep. on on sunday and the utr won't help you at all. Right. So, you know, yeah. UTR is so a bit suspect. Yeah, very fair. I think from a volume perspective, you know, I think we will see an influx here of freshmen. I think it's going to be another year like last year, though, where I don't know if we're going to have a bunch of freshmen really break into the top 10. Um, Ethan given, Quinn. Right. Other than Ethan Quinn. Ethan so, Quinn. Yeah. are there any players on not on this list that are missing? Jack Pennington Jones, I say in all caps, underlined and <laughs> italicized. I mean, that's that's the name, right? We just went through this whole conversation about UTR. Jack Pennington Jones' UTR would put him among those, you know, the top players in the country. It's a 14-2. Number two. It's, yeah, it's a 14-2-2. He's been ranked in the top 500 ATP. He was a top 10 junior in the world. He's coming to TCU. I'm going to guess there was a little British connection going on there with Cam Norrie and Jack mm -hmm. Pennington Jones. And it came out right around Wimbledon. I'm just I'm <laughs> hypothesizing here, but yeah, him not being on the list is a really interesting thing for a couple of reasons. The first is, is he eligible? Yeah. Because he should be eligible for the list. He's not a college tennis player. He showed up this fall. He's never played college tennis. 
We've seen this in the past with players who played a lot of pro events, which Jack Pennington Jones has, that sometimes they show up and they're not immediately eligible for their first year because of the amount of pro events and prize money and, and all of that. They they lose a year of eligibility. Yeah. And um, I would say Pennington Jones had a high profile turning pro moment where he signed with oh, Andy, yeah. Andy Murray's agency. It was a big deal in the UK. A lot of these players are basically pros, right? Toiling away at like yeah. the 15K, 25K level, but like they're not raking in that much money. So like it doesn't really yeah. matter. They just go to college and it's all fine. Here, signing with the agency, uh, there could be more complications got, for this one than others. Yeah, I mean, and he got ranked in the top 500 in the world. So he was playing yeah. a lot, okay? And for a year, over a year. So he's he's the, the one that sort of jumps off the page because, well, one, you, you hope guys who are that good are eligible, right? It makes yeah. college tennis way more fun when you have guys like that playing day in and day out. You want to see him competing when they play Texas. You want to see them him competing when they play Baylor. Like those Absolutely. are the guys that sort of, they level up what we think of as college tennis. And the second thing is TCU with him and TCU without him are two very different teams, right? That's, yeah. that's the big thing is you add him to a lineup that already has a guy like Luke Famba at the you know top of that lineup who I think Jack Pennington Jones could play one and Luke Famba could play two. And all of a sudden your perspective on that, you know, Sander Zhang is, still there yep. and you've added Sebastian Gorsny and you have um now I'm blanking on names you have Pedro Vives is still there Louis Maxted's yep. still there you have Jake Fernley still there I think yep, so he's still I mean, you have a ton of guys who all of a sudden that lineup looks pretty crazy good if Jack Pennington Jones is you know one or two in that lineup without him it's kind of just last year's TCU team out Aguilar in Gorsny which I mean, it's not bad, right? They they were a top 10 team in the country. They but won indoors. They won indoors. But they lost in the quarterfinals of NCAAs. I'm going to imagine that left a sour taste. Yep. And Aguilar played two pretty well for most of the year. And you're going to subtract him and add a freshman who's probably not going to play top three necessarily or not ideally, right? You want to maybe insulate your freshman when possible. It's a different TCU team if he's playing if he's not. And so yeah. that's one of the big, 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 big stories now to watch is like if he if he's eligible this year, that TCU team is a, is a is a threat to an international title. If he's not, I maybe put them on whatever the level right below legit national champion contender. They're one kind of notch right below that. Yep. So that's the big story for me. It definitely is, and we'll see. And he, he's he's on campus. He's part of the team photo shoots. He's on the roster. He's, he's enrolled. Oh, he's there. Academically, he is he's there. Hundred percent. And so we'll see. Right, we will see if he does in fact play these yeah. fall events, which should give some indication around the eligibility. Uh, two quick names I would throw in here is um, another Princeton name. So Paul Inchowski, uh top twenty-two in the world juniors, just made the Wimbledon doubles final. You know, shout out to Princeton, clearly recruiting, uh, Great very, recruiting class. very strongly there. The Ivy League in general, obviously Columbia as well. And then Jack Anthrop, right? You talk about the redshirt freshman of Ethan Quinn. Same thing yep. with Jack Anthrop uh, for Ohio State, you know, reached top 20 in the world juniors. Uh, you know, both he and Inchowski have a higher UTR than Braysack. So, yeah, you know, not the end of the world that they're not included in this list, though. And one more one that's sort of interesting to me for a couple of reasons, which is Anton Chovanec at Florida State 
had one of the higher UTRs in college tennis last year and wasn't he, eligible to play for the exact same reasons we were just talking about with Jack Pennington Jones. Yeah, he was, to be clear, he was the number one newcomer on last year's list. Yeah, so I guess because he was the number one newcomer on last year's list, he can't be on this year's list, but he's another guy to watch out for. And I'm 99 and a quarter percent sure he'll be playing for Florida State this year. So yeah, that's another name to watch out for that we just haven't seen before, but can't be ranked. He was a newcomer last year. He's not a newcomer this year. But yep. that also, that adds to the sort of drama of the Jack Pennington Jones thing. There was a guy last year who was in the exact same set of circumstances who was not eligible to play, but he was ranked. So it's sort of a strange... Strange yeah. set of circumstances with, yeah. with with Pennington Jones. We'll see what happens. I think trying to make rhyme or reason of like who is eligible, who is not eligible. Uh, is, it's um, impossible. You don't know until it's yeah. match day. Guys <laughs> are in uniforms and being sent to courts. Uh, you exactly. don't literally. You don't know until the lineups being read because. Yep. Guys will take warm-ups and then they'll sit there. And you're like, oh, okay, well, I guess that person's not playing today. And by so. the way, I don't think this is just a fan thing. I think coaches, I mean, this is a, a struggle for them to get these guys eligible, get these women eligible. You know, these it's are work. It's a hundred percent it's work. work. And it and it can vary school to school. What are what your school's, you know, willing to approve in its internal compliance office before going 100%. to the NCAA? Yep. You know, school to school, the rules are different. And then, you know, then it ultimately it is up to the NCAA and the NCAA makes some weird choices. You see guys get two years of eligibility that seem impossible to find. And you see guys get, you know, three years of eligibility when you're like, what that he took one semester off. Why doesn't he, <laughs> you know, yeah. so you, you do see strange decisions. So it's very hard to be predictive about what's going to happen until yes. match day. So. I would be a moderately, I'd have some extra spending money. If I got a dollar every time a coach said, for certain, a certain player was not eligible, and then they end up being eligible. At well, that time. was the storyline of last January. We we got a lot of for certain, a certain player would That's be eligible. True. And was there on the first road trip, warming up in uniform, practicing the whole nine yards, and then match one happens and not playing. So yep. you know, you you don't know until you know. That would be my uh, that would be my statement about coach. Even the coaches on that, they they're like us. Exactly. So. That pretty much covers the men. Let's move on to the women newcomers list. So I'll yep. walk through this and we'll kind of do the same structure we did with the men. So number one, Diana Schneider uh, for NC State. Number two, Reese Brantmeyer of North Carolina. Number three, Daria Kudashova of Oklahoma. Number four, Nicole Kieran of Texas. Number five, Alexis Blockina of Stanford. Number six, Maddie Sieg of USC. Number seven, Raquel Gonzalez of Oklahoma State. Number eight, Nicole Rivkin of Texas. Number nine, Mia Kupris of Texas A&M. And number 10, Anastasia Lopata of Georgia. So off the bat, Ethan, did they get number one right? Diana Schneider. Take I mean, I don't, I don't know what I don't know, but all of the facts seem to indicate, yeah, they did. I mean, uh, her UTR is an 11-7-1, which is higher than Aaron Cayetano, who's number one in the country. Yeah. So significantly you, higher. I mean, sig sig half a point, yeah. half a point higher. So yeah, it's hard to sit here and go, no, they messed that one up. Especially when you look at, and by the way, Reese Brantmeyer until Diana Schneider committed to NC state, whatever it was a month ago, Reese Brantmeyer was a slam dunk to be number yeah. one new, like it was a slam dunk. So they, not only did they get number one, right. They got number two, right. As well. And, you know, it's a shame that, uh, that NC state had the lineup turnover that they had. It's sort of, I think, add Diana Schneider, keep the lineup that they had last year. And you could see a pretty crazy set of 
North Carolina teams in the ACC. And Alana Smith getting eligible for NC State. I mean, I think that was the, that was the plan. I think the uh, Prisca Negroho turning pro hurts. 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 I mean, the, the, the state of North Carolina tennis had, especially if Negroho was able to stay with UNC, which, I mean, it feels like every year the rich get richer there. And then Duke who gets UNC's best player to transfer to Duke. And then NC State now getting the best recruit, having Negroho who had an who had a great freshman year, and Alana Smith, and and North Carolina tennis was going to be insane this year. And yeah. and look, NC State's still going to be very very good, but absolutely not quite what it would have been if if Negroho was there as well. So there, yeah, I mean, I th- think we can't underscore how I mean. Dana Schneider's 246 in the WTA. Yeah. She is like yeah, it's a crazy. few wins away from making the Australian Open. Uh, no, she falls into the same category that that Emma Navarro and Peyton Stearns were in, which was these are borderline successful professional tennis players playing college tennis. You know, yeah, but they were not at this level when they committed. Not when they first showed up. I mean, exactly. by the end of last year, right? Emma was top three hundred, and Peyton yep. was barely outside of the top. She was like three twelve, I think. When I don't know, Peyton's like three thirty right now. Oh, okay, so maybe she was a little bit lower. Maybe she was yeah. four twelve, but. I mean, they were, they were glorified professional. I mean, Emma was a professional tennis player playing college tennis. She was traveling, you know, three, you know, three weeks a month to play pro events. So yeah, she's in that same sort of category. We have to see it translate to college tennis. We have the evidence with Emma and Peyton that it, that it can work. Right. And that it has worked, but you have to see it happen. Right. You know, you want to see it, you want to see it in action. And the benefit for her is that she's in the ACC, which is the most insane conference in men or women's tennis. The, the, ACC women's tennis is the most competitive conference in college tennis, men or women. I don't care what the SEC men's people say. The what ACC about the Big 12 tennis, women? No. Back the to ACC back women's, ACC women's tennis is the craziest thing ever. I mean, I remember watching the UVA women and it was like they would have a great year and be eight in the country and behind three other ACC teams. It's the craziest conference. There is so much depth. There are no easy. Well, there are very few easy weekends. And the odds that you're going to play back to back matches against top 10 teams are like 100 percent because you're going to have to take a trip to North Carolina. So it's a brutal conference and it'll be really fun to see the top two newcomers sort of slot right into that that chaos absolutely and both are in the pre-qualifying for all americans so it seems like both plan to play the fall season which will be really great a few other takeaways for me you know texas obviously the only school here with two players uh we'll talk more later on about kind of their roster turnover but they still bring in you know excellent recruits it's incredible that they're going to put out an entirely different top six basically that's going to be similarly talented i mean hats off to hats off to the coach that's an incredible, incredible thing to do. Yes. Uh, yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. And the other one other takeaway was to me, all of these players are basically going to clear front runners for the NCAA yeah. title, right? We talk about Texas, we talk about Oklahoma, we're talking about North Carolina, we're talking about Stanford. That wasn't necessarily the case for the men, right? We were talking about no. San Diego, yeah. Princeton, Duke, Columbia. These yeah players are all coming in the rich to, get richer yeah, the rich get richer yeah. and what i talked about with you know ethan quinn not necessarily being his utr not necessarily being at the top of college tennis that is not the case for these incoming yeah, no. women right we talked no. about diana schneider but even 
you know, there are only six players in all of college tennis who have a higher UTR than number five newcomer Alexis Blockina. So if you are yeah. a UTR diehard, you look at this class and you go, wow, we expect to see newcomers well, at the very top of college tennis. And and you look at the top 10 women and then the top 10 newcomer women, and you see that a lot of them are going to schools with players ranked in the top 10. Yes, right? Absolutely. So Reese Brantmeyer, actually, does UNC not have a woman ranked in the top 10? They don't. That's sort of hilarious. Um, but Reese Brantmeyer is going to a, a school that has a gajillion players ranked in the top 30. Uh, Alexis Blakina is going to Stanford, where Connie Ma is. Maddie Sieg is going to USC, where Aaron Cayetano is. Uh, Mia Kupras is going to Texas A&M where uh, Carson Branstein is. You see a lot of players going to schools where you just said Alexa Blockino, right. Would have whatever it was the highest UTR in, in college tennis. She's going to she, No, there's only she, six returning players that are above her. Right. So yes. Yeah, so she's, she's already got one of the highest UTRs in yes. college tennis. And one of her and Connie Ma is going to play two for that team. Right. And Maddie C. Yep. If one of them's playing three. Yep. Yep. If Maddie C at USC is, Pro- I mean, I don't know. Is she going to play behind Aaron Cayetano? Probably. She's just behind her in, right. in UTR and has a win over her. Right. So, it's, yeah. you know, that's the fun part is you see these players and there's a natural progression for them, right? Maddie C is going to play behind Aaron Cayetano and then eventually that torch will be passed and Maddie C yep. will play one for that USC team. I don't know if it'll be this year, next year, but it's, it's cool to see the progression that a lot of these schools are building with players. And yes, Texas doesn't have Peyton Stearns anymore, but they filled the gap pretty efficiently between the transfers and now they have two of the top 10 newcomers. So I would expect more big things from the University of Texas, certainly. Absolutely. And yeah, and Oklahoma, I completely skipped Oklahoma. Lane Sleeth is in the top 10 in the country and and Daria is, is a number three newcomer. So yeah, the rich get richer. Yeah, that's certainly the through line for the women. There weren't too many that I thought were like noticeably missing on the women. Um, I will call out like Alexandra Vekic, who has now is an interesting up. one. Yeah, she's interesting. She's popped up on the Georgia roster. She would come in uh, with quite a eleven point oh eight UTR. Again, you mentioned fourteen on the men's side. For those listening, like eleven is sort of the threshold for women. Eleven is that far like, exactly. yeah, for women. So I mean, she committed to LSU in twenty nineteen. Committed again in 2020, turned pro in 21, is now on the Georgia roster. She's had some good results on the tour. Uh, she's one to watch in the Pennington Jones of like, are they eligible? Right? She's on the yeah, roster. And that, she's there. That, that Georgia team, add her, it's, it's very similar, right? That if you add her to that Georgia team, they take a big step forward in, in terms of how we think about their, their potential this year. And without her, maybe we're not so hot on, on Georgia this year. Yeah. But they still so, have Lopata, right? Number 10. Yeah. So. No, they're still going to be a, they are still going to be a very, very, very good team. It's just, yep. you start, you know, ultimately it takes six legitimately amazing players to contend for a national title. And when you can add another one, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's only good news. So any other players that you thought might've been missing from this list? Not missing necessarily, but I will call out Annabelle Zhu for for a really interesting reason. And and look, it, it is UVA, so I'm somewhat biased. But uh, the opportunities are kind of abound at UVA this year. It's a very deep team with a lot of players, but there's nobody who's clearly going to play one. I mean, coming day one, you sit there and you go, probably Natasha Subash. Yeah. She's a senior. She's been an All-American. She's been around the block. But 
if Coach O'Leary has her way, I'm going <laughs> to guess Natasha won't be playing one for very long. So there's that door is open at UVA to be, you know, that lineup is going to be a scramble, I think, all year. Elaine Travinsky has been in the top three. Natasha Subhash has been in the top three. Julia Adams transfers from Furman. She played yep. one for Furman for a really long time. She's ranked in the top 40 in the country, I think. So there's a lot of players that need to fit into random spots. Could you see Annabelle Zoo her freshman year playing four? Absolutely. Could she play two? Maybe. Who knows? You know, there's the opportunity. The door's open at UVA for a player to come in and have a great fall and stand out and earn the number one spot that's been sort of left behind by Emma Navarro. It's very big shoes to fill, but someone's got to do it. So I'm, I'm curious to see what her fall looks like, where she shows up on day one for UVA. And, and sort of see what happens. I think this is a really interesting UVA team that I could probably talk about for quite a while. So I think Annabelle's presence is, is another one of the very interesting parts of that team. There are a lot of sort of unknown entities there that, that we'll have to see where, where the pieces fall before we, we know more about the team. Yep. And I'm sure you and I will have lots of conversations about that UVA women's team. I'm 100% course, sure we will. <laughs> September and May. Uh, so I think that pretty much wraps up the preseason rankings list. Fall action is kicking off this weekend. Uh, exciting times, right? We're exciting to, you know, all Americans coming around the corner. Lots happening. Not in quite the January world. excitement. It's not quite January excitement, it's but it's not it's quite close. January it's excitement. Close. But close. you know, things are happening. So, Ethan, appreciate you doing this with me. Uh, I know you're in law school, so I know taking time out of your day can be tough. Uh, where can people follow you if you do have a few moments on Twitter to spout off some thoughts? At Ethan Moss, uh, Ethan spelled the way you would, M-O-S-Z on, on Twitter. I, I try and post sometimes uh, with the U.S. Open going on. It's been sort of my focus recently. But, uh, yeah, when I can, I'm, I'm on there. And, and then, yeah, Ethan M-O-S on, on Instagram. If anybody feels like seeing me relive my glory days, you know, every, <laughs> every, every few months now and again with a picture from UVA Men's Tennis. So that's, awesome. that's where you can find me. Cool. Well, I appreciate you doing this, Ethan. Uh, for my Twitter, JTweetsTennis, you can follow the Instagram at noad, no problem. Uh, you know, keep the conversation going. If there were players that you think we should have talked about, let us know, you know, at us on Twitter. <laughs> Ethan, have a great rest of your day. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. Yeah, it was a pleasure. <laughs>